Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm the host, Heather Stark, and we've been doing this show for seven years, um, but even older than that, the fact that I know our guest. Now, I'm not even sure if she remembers that I know her, but I do. We're privileged today to have Mary Ellen Stone with us. Mary Ellen is Executive Director of the King County, Washington, uh, King County Sarks. Uh, I don't know if you use that acronym or not, but King you County know, Sexual Assault. Yeah, we have a... We have a- Oh, we have a lot of. I mean, it's it's a clunky acronym. So, Heather, I'm the, I, I certainly do remember you, but you're it's King County Sexual Assault Resource Center. KSARC is just a lot easier for everybody to say. Okay, great. Yeah. So you do remember? My gosh, it has to have been oh, close to forty years ago um, yes, when you were director yeah. of King County Sexual Assault Center for Children. And to be honest with you. I don't even remember if I did a good job or not. It was so long ago. I, <laughs> I, may, I may have been the worst board member you ever saw. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> but it is gratifying to me to know that uh, you are still involved in this field and uh, you were a, an amazing uh, director then, and I am sure you are an amazing director now. And uh, isn't it funny how when we get started on something like that, it kind of sticks with us for life. I, of course, have channeled more of my energies and education into uh, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, uh, rather than just sexual assault. And I'm doing it from the standpoint of providing information and uh, doing studies rather than actual direct service, because I'm pretty sure I'd be crummy at that. Um, but you know, the, the fact that this whole sexual assault, uh, intimate partner violence, it affects so many of us. Um, it's just astonishing. And one of the things that I want to talk about, well, I should finish my introduction of you. You hold a master's degree in counseling from the University of Minnesota, and she's a, you are a graduate uh, of Leadership Tomorrow and the Alki Foundation. You've built partnerships with businesses and companies, not just in King County, but also I know around the state and perhaps even further that I'm not aware of, I know that the organization is nationally recognized for being effective and innovative in the services that it provides. So that being said, um, we're getting a lot of information about COVID and the increase in murders, the increase in sexual assault, the increase in domestic violence. And I'm hearing a lot of people blaming COVID for that. That's one of my pet peeves. Are we seeing an increase locally and or nationally in these kinds of um, assaults and violence? You know, yeah, it's a complicated question. Um... So let me let me speak locally. Um, we have not seen a marked increase in sexual assaults, which is the primary type of work that we do. Um, but we haven't. But at, and at the same time, we haven't seen a marked decrease. And I think for your listeners to keep in mind, um, KSARC has seen over the last. A couple of years, a 22% increase overall in the number of victims contacting us for help. What really sparked it for us was um, was Me Too when that when that took off. So we saw a 20 we've seen a 22% increase, and we have sustained that increase even during COVID times. Um, so to me, you know, it, it continues to reinforce sexual assault is happening, whether or not we're in stay-at-home. 
uh, mode where both sexual assaults are happening and the impact of sexual assault, um, whether it happened a couple months ago or several years ago or decades ago, is still with us during this COVID time. So we're we're seeing our numbers stay very very steady, which which I think is an important piece for people to know. I think domestic violence, from talking to my colleagues, has increased um, because of because of people being because of victims in particular having fewer acts, fewer ways to get out of situations, um, and and domestic violence being used. I mean, COVID being used as sort of a a weapon of control in certain situations. What we are seeing um, that has certainly increased is uh, child physical abuse, and we do some work with child victims of physical abuse, and we're seeing um, more children experiencing more serious kinds of physical abuse. You know, we we, we can say that, um, I mean, does COVID cause these things? No. Does does people being being um, under even more stress and frustration and worry that that those can be um, uh, I, I guess triggers is probably the best word for um, people to lash out and hurt other people. But in the end, people are responsible for their own behavior. And so to say that COVID is causing any of this, I, I don't think is right. It is putting more stress on people for sure. Um, yeah. It's not well, like it's causing these. And that there's already sense? a problem with victim blaming. Yeah, absolutely. And there's already a, a huge um, uh, problem with blaming victims um, when they are attacked and, and violated. And I, it seems to me that COVID exactly. is just another way of blaming the victim. Um, but your, your, your point is very well taken about, especially in domestic violence, that victims have fewer uh, ways to get away from that um, and that it is not, in fact, COVID that's causing this. And I have heard this from some people, and I want to make really clear that COVID isn't causing anything except maybe uh, impatience. Um, with, with us, and uh, that so that's my thing. So thank you for for clarifying that and bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Let's back up a little bit. I'm kind of disjointed today, and I don't know why. I'll blame COVID. Um, <laughs> when, we, <laughs> what exactly um, does KSARC do? What kinds of things do do you deal with? And sure. tell me a little bit about your organization. Sure, sure. I am happy to do that. Um, we focus on helping victims of sexual assault recover and reclaim their lives. That is our our mission. Um, our, we believe at some point our vision is a community free of sexual assault, and until we get to that point, our mission is to help people recover, to speak out, to change behaviors that contribute to sexual assault. So... There's a whole range of what we provide to the community, everything from a 24-hour resource line, uh, which means that we have counselors available 24-7. We help people through the legal, criminal legal process, um, which is um, extremely complicated in the best of times, and and this is one of those under COVID particularly complicated now. 
Um, we know, too, that families are heavily impacted by sexual assault, and over 50% of the victims we see are children and teens. So part of what we strive to do is to make sure that that whole family um, knows how to respond to help and to recover as a family from the abuse. Uh, we don't work with offenders, but we do work with all the other family members. And then finally, there's a lot of um, really effective therapy for people who are suffering from anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorders related to a sexual assault. So we work with people um, to be able to, to address that, and we do that very, very effectively. Um, we All of our services are in Spanish. We have a fully bilingual, bicultural team um, who works with victims, and we provide the same services in Spanish as we do in English. The final piece we do is prevention, um, education, and training, because we know in the end it's, this is about a culture shift. This is about recognizing um, that sexual assault exists because of a lot of factors, including but not limited to our assumptions around gender roles, our beliefs around consent and healthy relationships, um, our, our approach to how do we deal with communication and empathy, and all of those, those factors, um, when addressed, we can reduce the risk of both sexual assault, but also, as we were talking earlier, dating violence, domestic violence, the interpersonal violence, you know, because it's, it's really, um, as you well know, I mean, sexual assault is a, is a, is a factor of, of power and control. Um, and so where we can create more equal, more equality, more equal relationships, um, less exploitive relationships, then we're going to reduce the likelihood for sexual violence. Thank you, and thank you uh, for uh, being there. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was the age of victims, and I'm thinking that a lot of people don't realize that. We see the TV shows or whatever, and we picture the the young woman wearing her high heels and walking home alone through the, the dark tunnel, mm -hmm. and we see that as the sexual assault victim. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, every time we see that, we think, oh, you crazy lady, why are you walking alone through that tunnel in Central right. Park? Um, so what you're saying to me is, no, that is not the typical victim that you are seeing. Is that correct? Well, well, right. I mean, we, well, that's not the – let me let – me, right, that's not the typical victim. I mean, so let me give you and your, um, some, your listeners some, some big-picture numbers. Most of the time – um, the victim knows the offender. Um, so for la from last year in 2019, uh, probably about, well, around, I don't know, say 90, little 87% of the time, the victim knows who the offender is. That's heavily the case in child and teen victims. Um, and with adult victims, there are a, a large number of people who know the offender, maybe an acquaintance, a neighbor, coworker, somebody in that category. There is right now, we're seeing probably about a 10 to 12% of the victims that we respond to every year being assaulted by a stranger. So I don't want to say that that doesn't happen. That is the more unusual situation. Um, 
Yeah, but but that, and you're right, Heather, that's what sticks in people's minds when you think about sexual assault. That's part of what, what makes it hard sometimes for people to figure out how do I respond because we have this one image of who the victim is and who the offender is. And then when reality doesn't line up with that, you know, it sort of causes us to question, um, is this really a sexual assault? Mm. I, you know, I have a theory about that. <laughs> and I'm lucky uh-huh. for you. I'm sharing the theory with you. Um, I think that, and I see this a lot in domestic violence, uh, very well-meaning people who um, just can't quite wrap their heads around good old Joe being uh, a, a, an abuser or a rapist or whatever. And I hear a lot of people saying to the victim, well, weren't there red flags? Um, why, yeah. why we, and I'm, I, kept, I kept thinking for years, why do people do that? And then it finally dawned on me, it's protection. If I can make what happened to you your fault in some way, then I'm not going to do what you did, or I'm smarter than you did, or I'm sure. more observant than you. And so, therefore, I am safe. Uh, I, and and I, think so, you're, I think you're exactly right, because we do need to explain to ourselves how this won't happen to us. Yes. And and I think by doing this blaming of the victim uh, or for not seeing or not sensing or not you know, and, and and in years past, it was not dressing appropriately or not walking into that, you know, tunnel in, in Central Park or whatever. If we can make it that victim's fault, then we're, we we won't do that. We're safe. And, and I think right. that changed my attitude about um, those kinds of responses. Because now instead of becoming yeah. angry or indignant over that, I just, I, and it really, it, it's actually been effective. I, I've actually looked at people who've made comments like that and I've smiled. And I've said, I understand that if you think that it's something she did or didn't do, it makes you feel safer. But you're not right. 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 And then right, right, they right. drop their defenses. And it really is, it, I've found it a very effective uh, way to really educate people. But maybe I'm just self-aggrandizing, who knows. Well, um, well <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, think, I think we do we do. You know, we do struggle with that. Um, yeah, I um, I was fortunate enough to have a conversation a couple of weeks ago with Tarana Burke, who is the founder of Me Too, and she said something that I think we we certainly struggle with and, and recognize is that how do you hold two truths about somebody? And mm. so, if you, so if you look at um, most of the time the victim knows who the offender is, you're absolutely right we get into this, well, how could you know this famous person or this well-known person or this person who I know or this relative do this? And so we we tend to categorize it of either they, that you can't have people who you respect, admire, like doing bad things. And I think... That is where we we sort of get collectively stuck. So it's one or the other, and if we can figure out how we can hold both truths about people, that yes, they may be a talented artist and they may have also raped somebody, that those those mm-hmm. two pieces are not. Um, you, you you can have both within the same person. The word is falling out of my head right now. But I think that that is part of what, and and so and so. Then to your point of, 
we say, well, that can't be the case. So therefore, um, it's easier to assume that Uncle Joe can't be a sex offender because I know him and he's a good person, rather than saying, yeah, maybe he could do that and still be a good uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think where we where we've also where we probably. It, 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 what makes it more complicated, too, is I think the fact that we have tended to, this is we, the we collectively, have sort of mm-hmm. cast people who commit sexual assault as you know, monsters, as um, terrible people. And, and so you get into the variation of your theory, which is I can tell somebody is a sex offender by looking at them. Um, or I know, you know and, and so therefore, because they don't fit my image, whatever that is, Therefore, they can't be a sex offender, and therefore, that, that so the next step is then the person who is saying something about them can't be right or misunderstood or whatever. Mm-hmm. You had said something a few minutes ago about uh, giving statistics about ten to twelve percent of the uh, people that you see uh, have been victimized by stranger assault. Um, when we talk about stranger danger. I, I've noticed that when we educate children, um, we're now no longer talking so much about stranger danger. Thank goodness, we're talking about, you know, safety in general. Um, but we're, is that that whole notion of educating children about, you know, the the horrible stranger with candy, uh, the stranger danger thing that was so popular about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, to educate children and, and supposedly make them safe? Is that because we thought that all of these assaults or the primary number of assaults was from a stranger, whether it was? I think so. Um, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that I mean, you're right. We, you know, that was popular boy several decades ago fortunately we are moving away from that and I, and I do think um there is sort of a common understanding or a more more general understanding by by the public that stranger sexual assaults are less common um i think we have made some progress there mm-hmm. do you think there's still a, a sense though that it's not quite the same if, you know, Uncle Joe assaults you as if a stranger does. I, I, it seems to me that I people so. tend to be more, I, I, more you, fearful. I, you know, I mm-hmm. think, yeah, and I think that that's where, where we, where, where media, where communication becomes really important to say, this is really what sexual assault looks like. This is who a victim is like you know the, these are who who these are the people who've been victimized. These are the people who commit offenses. And let's get real and more accurate about who does this. And I think that's where um, you know things like the Me Too movement have been very very helpful in saying this is this is what it looks like. This is people's experience. Um, so that we don't fall back on as much as on those old stereotypes, but are really saying, look, this is what's happening every day to to mostly women, um, you know, and, and so broadening it for this purpose for women and children. I mean, this is this is what's happening. I mean, we have got to be able to to um, accurately describe what's happening in the area of sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, and and that I think then sort of gets at some of those um, those misinform- pieces of misinformation which would certainly serve a purpose, um, but but sort of contradicts those in a way to say we need to we need to think about this 
more broadly and, and actually based on what people's experience is. Has the definition of sexual assault changed in the last few years? Legally, no. In our minds, has it changed? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I you know, I think I, I think Me Too has helped broaden the understanding a little bit. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think that that's in some ways maybe a question for your listeners. Do they think about it differently than they used mm-hmm. to? I think from the people that I speak to, um, it has it, the, the Me Too movement has has created a great deal of awareness about the breadth of sexual assault or sexual intrusion. I guess I would say, um, but. I get some sense, and this could just be me. I mean, obviously, I'm limited, you know, to who who I uh, speak to about this. But I get the sense that there's kind of a a feeling that everything from being groped to being raped in the back alley is equal. And I'm not sure people perceive that as equal. Do do you see where I'm getting? I'm I'm wondering if that at play with uh, uh, or something that you see and and, well, and you know, the, we, the reason I say that is because uh, if you if you perceive both acts as equal then does that mean that in your mind you're minimizing one over the you know because uh, I don't know where I'm going with this but do you do you kind of get a sense of where I'm what I'm asking I, I think I think there is I think there is a desire to say what's the worst, you know, there's like we rank order things, like what's the worst thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think what Me Too has done is sort of broaden that to say there is a real range. And and what we say is sort of adding on to that, saying we go by what the victim defines as, as, as her or his experience. And so... You know, from my perspective as an individual, I may say, gosh, you know, this incident would be to me the most distressing. That may not be the same for victims or a Mm -hmm. victim. victim, You know, somebody may say, look, this incident, which perhaps to my mind seems like, huh, that really wasn't so bad compared to this other thing, she or he may say, you know, that really destroyed me. Um, I'm really struggling with that. So for us, it's always about saying for people who were working with particularly in treatment, what is the worst thing? That's their definition. People react very differently based on Mm -hmm. all sorts of emotional, psychological sets. So so I think, you know, the, the importance of Me Too sort of reminded everybody or brought into focus, this is an individually defined experience. People react differently, and the the person whose whose story it is, whose experience is, they're in charge of that. We're not going to sit mm-hmm. and pass judgment on that. Okay. How over the years that that uh, Case Arc has been operating, how do you think your services have changed, and why? Um. 
Yeah, good question. Um, I, I probably a couple things. One is again over over the years, um, we we have um, made a significant and sustained commitment to the Latinx community. So all of our services are in Spanish and English. Um, that was a change we put in place probably 15 years ago, um, and that continues to grow and and is our commitment. So that means everything from um, you know Spanish-speaking receptionists to therapists to legal advocates to help through the 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 whole intake and coming in process. All of those are by people provided by individuals who are bicultural, bilingual. Um, so that has been one thing. Um, the criminal justice process is taking longer and longer, and this is pre-COVID. So um, and now, of course, it's very much longer. Um, so it's like I think there's a greater sense of being in this for the long haul. Um, so that's that's another piece. One of the areas that has really evolved, and I think it's exciting and hopeful, is prevention. You know, initially we started doing prevention really as what would now be considered um, risk reduction. So reducing the likelihood that sexual assault might happen to you. So this is the, you know, um, this is a, you know, telling your friends when you're when you're going out. It's keeping an eye on your friends when all of you are out at an event. Um, it's reducing reducing your risk. Prevention has changed dramatically um, and, and now is saying, how do we reduce the likelihood that somebody will commit a sexual assault? Because we want to stop sexual assault from happening. We don't want to just avoid it. Um, and so that has been that has been a piece that, that I think has been a hard thing to, to, to really sort of explain and um, for people to, to be able to understand because we're used to sort of a one-time thing. But to the extent that we can, we can show people, you know, when we, have, when we have good communication, when we have empathy for each other, when we have clear understanding about gender roles and um, healthy relationships, that is going to reduce the likelihood of people sexually assaulting other people. Um, so that that's a very hopeful piece. It's long term, obviously, um, and it's multifaceted. But that is a piece that we're really wanting to move as an organization. Mm-hmm. Do you still um, do risk reduction um, as part of the prevention training? Um, we do it to. Uh, um, I was going to say, do we do it? Not really, because. I, yeah, we we really don't, and 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 what's happened too with our prevention to to sort of go into that is that we we know that there's you know some one-time sort of awareness. Here's what sexual assault is. Here's you know here's who's likely to be a friend or all of that. We th- that has sort of limited value. Um, just like anything that we are learning about, I mean, you know, you look at COVID, right? I mean, you have to have information um, presented in a number of ways over a period of time. 
to get people to change their behaviors. And that's what we're what we're really trying to do. So we're working right now um, in an ongoing basis with a couple of the school districts, including the Renton School District in both high school and middle school classes to the extent that that's possible online through Zoom. But it's it's really helping students develop language and skills and understanding about healthy relationships at this point and how to um how to how to be able to ask for consent and how to be able to say no, I don't want to do that. So that is that's something that takes place over time. So the risk reduction in that sense is really that's a that's that's an that's a way of looking at that we we have shifted away from to say instead how do we change culture and community and communication around healthy relationships and go that direction rather than reducing your risk. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I think I've seen that. I I must say, you know, probably because I'm an old fart, um, I I I don't want to hearken back to the days where everybody, all women, had to go to the bathroom in pairs and things like that as part of their. But as a parent of uh, both a daughter and a son, I must say I really spoke with them a great deal about reducing their risk of not only sexual assault but of car accidents and, you know, sure. damage and, and, to and, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not a bad thing. And so, thing. I, I, yeah, so I guess, you know, for me, I, I think it doesn't hurt to talk about risk reduction as far as, you know, I mean, one of the things that for for me with my, my children was don't drink because when you drink, yeah. you lose control. Yeah. And when you lose control, sure. you know, bad things happen. Um, so I guess... I, I I see the value still for risk reduction, um, but I'm I'm not seeing it or hearing it quite quite as much, and so that's why I was asking you that question. Uh, on the other hand, it's also a very handy and easy and convenient way to blame the victim. Um, well, if, if and all you... yeah, yeah, I I think that, and it also in the end doesn't change a whole lot. I mean, I, and I and I probably you know sort of was was misleading in that. It's not that risk reduction is a bad thing or a waste of time to do because we all, you know, we all want to reduce bad things from happening to us. Um, it's not prevention. It's it's yeah because you know, it doesn't it doesn't change anything um, mm-hmm. in terms of sort of helping move people away from committing sexual assaults. What it what it does hopefully is is to reduce the likelihood of, of this thing, this bad thing happening to your son or your daughter. Um, but does it change sort of any of the underlying conditions? Uh, not really. And so that's where, as an organization, mm-hmm. what we've decided to do is to go down that, that other path of saying, this is, mm-hmm. this is where we need to get to. If, if our vision is a community free of sexual assault, then we really need to go down this path. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, and that's and and obviously nothing is a single solution. Uh everything requires a Exactly. Yeah. pattern of solutions and a pattern. I think I don't know whether that's cultural or or what, but it seems to me so so many of us and I'll include myself in that. Uh, we want an answer and we'd like it now. <laughs> right. And, and you know, and and, and, and so we'd like it to work. Answer. And let's move yeah. on. Let's just do this and, and take, uh, take and it off, and then we're done. Yeah. Yeah, and we'd like it to be free, please. Um, yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> you know, you had mentioned under prevention, you know, teaching what healthy relationships look like. Um, one of the things that I've always said, I had a long-term marriage, but it was a very bad marriage. And I've always said, I can't show my children how to have a good marriage, but I can show them how to get out of a bad one. So maybe that's all I can do. You know, maybe I can't, you know, show. So, um, and, and maybe, who knows, maybe that's sufficient for however their lives will turn out. I don't know. But ideally, I think it would be an education about what a healthy relationship looks like because I know so much yeah, of my I, relationship yeah. is spent going, is this normal? Is, should I be feeling this? Should, should, I, mm-hmm. should this be happening? You know, because in reality, the only real intimate look at relationships that we have usually is with our parents. And if theirs wasn't sure. so hot, then guess what? You don't, you know, I mean, sure. you're, you're not going to lose it by watching the Cosby show, you know? So yeah. my question to you is, what is a healthy relationship? Oh, my. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think where when I, 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 there are a couple pieces, and, you know, people are going to have their own definitions, but, but there's, there's got to be mutual respect. Um, a willingness to hear each other. There's got to be the willingness to engage in healthy conflict, um, and 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 so with with those with you know respect, listening to somebody's needs, being able to to be in conflict, and then hear that other person and come with some solutions. Um, you know, those those are skills that are most most often and ideally sort of developed over time with children and teens. Um, there's a lot of focus right now on um, social and emotional learning for younger children. The foundation of all of that has been young people, and, and so for children, you know, children, so looking for little kids, it's, how to recognize your own feelings and understand your own feelings and name them and recognize that other people have feelings. And so it's, it's developing empathy, it's developing consent, it's developing understanding of each other. And I think those are the foundations of both you know, more intimate relationships, but it's also the foundation of how do we have healthy, healthy relationships with the people we work with and we go to school with and in our families. That's interesting. One of the things that I always think of when I uh, think of a healthy relationship is people who can laugh together. A lot of people that I see have, they don't laugh at the same thing. And I would think that that would be... Oh, oh, sure. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean... Presume in any sort of relationship, whether you know it's friends or intimate partners, is you know there's got to be those shared their shared values, and certainly for me, being able to laugh together is is a pretty important thing. But I think sort of fundamentally, it's that respect and understanding, being able to hear each other, being able to communicate with each other. Um, I mean that, and and that that is the those are skills. Those are yeah. um, uh, those are learned that that can be learned by mm-hmm. most people. Um, the sooner we start that with um, in our families and in 
in schools. I mean, this is like here's this is how you can be a a, a productive citizen, um, a contributing member of our society, a good employee, a great student. A I mean, all those things require ability to be able to work and trust and and hear the other person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so I took notes, so, you know, if another relationship comes my way, I'll know how to have it healthy. <laughs> well. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about those lasting effects. When we first started speaking, you said that, um, you know, different, you know, that, that you try to uh, help um uh, victims, I'll use the word victims, uh, to recover and reclaim their own lives. Sometimes that recovery can be very, very difficult. I know um, in many situations, lasting effects, uh, I, I know I was just uh, reading a study not too long ago on uh, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and uh, as many as 60 to 80%, depending on which study you read, of victims have PTSD that's not been acknowledged, diagnosed, or treated. Are you seeing similar cases like that, similar situations like that with sexual assault? Um, sure, and, and and so let me let me back up. PTSD is, and let me make this qualifier. I am not a clinician. However, PTSD is a collection of symptoms um, that people mm-hmm. experience in response to trauma. What we know with with PTSD is that it takes a couple, you know, that that if if it's going to manifest itself, it's going to be a couple months post assault. Not every sexual assault results in PTSD. Um, I don't remember the studies offhand, but I want to say somewhere between thirty, forty, fifty, somewhere in that range, less than fifty percent results in 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 PTSD. Which, which again, is a collect- collection of symptoms. That so, and and what we know is that for the most part, PTSD can be successfully treated. There are some very good treatments available um, that are quick, um, like we're talking months, not years, um, and that that they really can be very effective, and they have been shown to be effective across cultures. So um, they, you know, they work here. They work with with different communities within the U.S. They've also been shown to be effective um, in other countries. So I think the hopeful piece here is that there is good treatment available. KSARC is one of the primary providers of of that particular treatment um, focused on sexual assault in in King County. Um, but it, so that's the that's the PTSD piece. That doesn't mean that the sexual assault, if you don't get PTSD, wasn't so bad. I mean, people again react differently. And but what we do know is most is really important for victims is that the initial response from friends and family of being supportive, not blaming. I mean, you were talking about victim blaming earlier, and I agree completely. We really need to not go down that path with people. Um, we have a um, we have a fact sheet that I will send, ask Laurel to send to you, which says, you know, what do you do when someone tells you they've been sexually assaulted? And it sort of is a do and don't thing. 
Um, but what we urge people to do is is to say, you know, it's not your fault. I'm sorry this happened. How can I help? It's easy, you know, based on some of our earlier conversations, to say, well, you know, what are you wearing and are you sure and did this person really? Um, because of what we maybe don't want to do is think, well, how could this person who I know have done something? Or because, as you were saying earlier, I want to protect myself so it doesn't happen to me. Um, We know there's a lot of research to back that up, that sort of the first response that victims get on telling somebody, look, this happened, is really, really important. Um, And that can sort of set the tone for their feeling like, hey, I'm going to be able to get through this. I'm going to seek some help. I'm going to tell some other people. I'm going to make a police report, whatever. Um, That first response is important. Um, And so we do work with a lot of people to say, you know, if this happens, you want to, here's how to respond. Our 24-hour resource line, here's from friends and family members regularly saying, I just found out that the person who I love or the person in my life had this happen. What do I do? And we are really happy to help with that. Well, what are some of the other, obviously PTSD is one that most people have heard of, but what are some of the other lasting effects of having experienced sexual assault? Ideally, people can get treatment and support. And again, treatment doesn't necessarily have to be for PTSD, but it can be around dealing with anxiety and depression um, related to the sexual assault. What we know for trauma shows up in a lot of different ways, and you know whether it's you know whether it's domestic violence, sexual assault, other kinds of interpersonal violence, major life losses, a lot of those have sort of similar impacts, and so you see you see people struggling with. Things like, you know, maintaining a relationship or holding a job, um, being able to really function well, um, sort of self-medicating, drug and alcohol issues. Those are not unique to sexual assault. Um, Those kinds of long-term impacts on a person's mental and physical health for sure, on physical health, you know, stress and anxiety play a real big toll on our on our own on our bodies, um, and and unre- and that unresolved stress really can have a pretty damaging effect on our health. Um, those those um, those symptoms, if you will. I mean, they come out of some of the, you know, the discussions around systemic racism that we've been having, of people living under that kind of stress and living with that kind of fear. I mean, all of those factors take a toll on us physically. They take a toll on our relationships. Um, they take a toll on a person's ability to sort of maintain maintain their lives. Um, so it's it, so again it's not it's not unique to it's not unique to sexual assault, it, but it is in response to traumatic events that sort of shake your world, 
and we figure out how to cope with them sort of in the short term. Um, but the long term mm-hmm. may have some um, other um, impacts that are pretty negative. All right, thank you. How many people who um, KSARC serves actually file criminal charges and get uh, wrapped up into the criminal history and has that cha- or criminal system, and has that changed uh, over the last few years? Uh, good question. We so so. Let me start really big and then narrow it down. Uh, sexual assault is one of the most unrep- underreported crimes to law enforcement, and national estimates are about 40% of adult victims report to law enforcement. Um, and then that number drops precipitously all the way through. So when you get to the end in terms of a, you know, a trial and conviction and everything, you're looking at somewhere between 1% to 5% of people who have been um, accused of and convicted of sexual assault serve time. So a very small number. Um, locally, we have about 1,200 cases where the victim is going through um, the criminal justice process in some way or another. And, and it's important for your listeners to keep in mind, too, victims don't file charges. That's the prosecutor. Um, and the prosecutor decides, is there enough evidence here to be able to convince that, you know, is there enough evidence to think that the crime occurred? And then if I'm going to take it to trial, is there enough evidence here to convince a jury? So it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a did this happen or not, but you're like, can I prove it? Do I believe that there's enough that I can prove it to be able to take it to a jury? Um, there was a recent audit done by King County Auditors, which is an independent body within King County government that looked at reports to law enforcement to the sheriff's office and reports to, and then what happened to the prosecutors, uh, what, what action did the prosecutors take. And they found that um, we're really not doing any better job here than the national stats suggest. That is, a pretty small number report to law enforcement, and then that number drops all the way through the process. Um, So to us, that that really is a pretty unacceptable situation. And um, we really believe that if victims choose to report to law enforcement, there's got to be a much more um, assertive response, that cases need to be moved on more quickly, that the prosecutor should be uh, much more aggressively looking at and, and, and trying to uh, make sure that, ju- that from the victim's perspective, justice is upheld. So it's like, how, how do you convince a jury? How do you talk about this? Um, I mean, some of this goes, too, to um, how we think about sexual assault and who a sex offender is. Um, so it's like broadening that definition as well. But so so to answer your question a couple minutes ago, have we seen an increase? We actually have seen an increase in the number of victims coming forward, despite the fact that the outcomes are not really great. Um, I think that there is an expectation and some of this really came about after me, too, of people feeling like, you know, I want to make sure my voice is heard. I want to make sure I'm counted. I want to make sure people know this happened to me and that this person did this to me. So we have seen an increase there, and I think that that is happening around the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I have so many more questions to ask you, and I'm looking at the clock going, whoops, okay. Um, so one of the questions, I have a very uh, keen interest in urban versus rural, uh, especially in, in King County, our county. Um, it makes such a huge difference in so many things. Do you see it making a difference in the work you do or in the sexual assaults that Case Art deals with? You know that that's that's a good question um, because we serve all of King County. We're familiar with communities like Enumclaw and Black Diamond and Carnation, as well as obviously Seattle. I think you know if you, you sort of look at the number, you know, so you got a, a volume difference, obviously. But I, I I think that that there there remains there remains a sense broadly that um, that that victims are that people are assaulted by by strangers. So it's it's I think and in a smaller community, everyone's most likely more likely to know each other. So I think it becomes a little bit more difficult in some ways for victims to say, this person, who everybody knows, did this to me. Um, there's some different kinds of peer pressure still that may happen. Um, and, and, I, and I think some of that, too, just reflecting on conversations I've had, um, it, it, it counteracts perhaps um, an image of that smaller communities have for themselves of you know, we're a good, safe place, and people here know each other and take care of each other, which is a really, really positive thing. And then how do you incorporate information that is also, but, you know, this person sexually assaulted somebody else, or but this teacher in this school where all of our kids go did this to our kids. So it, 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 I think it's more difficult because there's maybe less space to, to have to align those two things. Okay. What about availability of services, uh, urban versus rural? Are the, are the rural folks uh, well, uh, able to access assistance? Um, I mean, obviously so, they so have is, the same. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's... So, um, you know, this is actually one of the things with, with COVID that all of our therapy services is provided via Zoom. Um, so whether you live in downtown Seattle or whether you live in Black Diamond, you know, it's, you've got the same kind of access. I mean, I think broadly, um, yes, um, there are still, um, I mean, we still provide services to the entire part of the county, throughout the entire county. And, you know, for your listeners outside of the King County area, every single county in the state has a sexual assault organization. Washington is a real leader when it comes to that. We have a pretty comprehensive system of services. And so there are services available in every single county. And I think that that's something to, to be proud of. Well, and I think that obviously since we're an international program, uh, you know, usually most communities have something. Now, it might not be mm-hmm. as comprehensive as King County has, but you, the the first thing I think that one would do is to try and seek out uh, those experts, those people who deal with this, 
and uh, who, who know what resources are available for you. So if you're in another state, check with your, your county services, check with the police department. Yeah. Usually the police department knows. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and, you know, RAIN, um, Rape, Abuse, Incest Network, I think is it, um, is a, is a state, well, is a national organization that connects people locally um, to, mm-hmm. organ- to services in their area. I mean, that's, that's a good resource to be able to check out. Um, so that, that would, that's another place for your listeners to, to look into. Well, this is a very comprehensive topic. One of the things that I'm um, kind of gobsmacked by, Mary Ellen, is uh, almost 40 years you've been doing this work. What led you to this work? Well, <laughs> um, you know, 40 years ago, what I had no clue. But it, but it comes to wanting to make a difference in the lives of women and children, um, of believing that um, that equality for women and making sure that women's voices were elevated um, was an important calling for me. Sexual assault, like so much of the other violence, uh, really impacts people in a way that um, restricts their lives, diminishes their ability to participate, um, impacts physical and mental health. So, so it was, it was a, and and the movement was just starting at the time that I was um, going into um, into the into the world. So it was one of those good timing. Um, opportunities that certainly aligned with my uh, fundamental beliefs. So that's what got Wonderful. me in, and that's what keeps me going. Okay. All right. So what's in the future? What's down the road? We have our hands full right now, and I have my hands full. So, I mean, I it's it's in spite of and or because of COVID, it's a very exciting time. Um, there's you know, in some ways we're we're sort of getting at some of the access issues that we haven't been able to do. We have um we're seeing a lot of progress on the state legislative level. Um the prevention work as we talked about earlier is is really um sort of the fundamentally right way to go and can have some lasting change in a way that I think we um it's hard to really imagine what that can look like. Is the climate for victims right now different? Is it more understanding, or are we still really, really striving um, to get some understanding for victims? I think it's better. Um, I think that there is an understanding now. And, and again, I'm going to go back to Me Too, which I think really sort of turned a lot of attitudes on their heads. Um, I think... I think that there is a better understanding of, of of what the impacts are, and that sexual assault is far more common than anybody had um, than, than many people had imagined. So I think with that comes um, some uh, understanding. And I think the other thing is that people, I mean, it's much more open now that everybody knows people who've been victimized, and that's definitely something that Me Too did because people were disclosing their experiences in a way that had not been done before. And, and that really was, I know, set a, a lot of people, uh, took a lot of people back going, wow, wow, I had no idea. Well, that's an important shift. You can't pretend that this is not an issue or you can't blame people when, you know, you find out that your best friend had this happen to her 
or that you find out that somebody who you had admired really at the same time was sexually harassing women in the workplace. I mean, so I think that has 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 made some changes, and I see those lasting into this time. I mean, it's been a couple of years since this happened, and I definitely see those still in, in place. Yeah. My observation is that as we see some of these famous people actually being held accountable for their behavior, that has to be a powerful message, I would think. I think it does. I think it is, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, famous or not so famous, it's good that people are being held accountable for their behaviors, especially when they're so detrimental to other people. Mary Ellen, we're almost out of time. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you feel that you, you'd want to take the last couple minutes and, and talk about? Um, I would just say, you know, you know, one, thank you for the opportunity here. And to your listeners, um, it is never too late to reach out for help. Um, so I want to make sure that people know that um, we find, I think especially in, in these times which are pretty stressful, um, a lot of people who've had experiences 10, 20, 30 years ago finding, you know, this is all just coming up again. And that's where mm-hmm. we're a 24-hour resource. So your listeners should feel free to give us a call at any point. Great. Great. Thank you. Uh, or call the resource center in your state uh, and, exactly. and get some help. Exactly. It, it, uh, yes. I, yeah, I really like that you said it's never too late to get help because we know. We know how those things stay with us. They don't go away. We may learn how to cover them up or, or act as if they didn't happen, but they're always there with us, and it's best to just deal with it, even if it is 30 or 40 years later. Right, Mary exactly. Ellen Stone, thank you so much for being with us and, and sharing this conversation about what's happening, uh, not as, particularly in King County, but I think that we're pretty representative of a lot of uh, areas in the United States here. And uh, it's good to know how some of these things are changing, and it's good to know that there are resources available even in the time of COVID. So thank you very much for sharing that with us, Mary Ellen. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. We'll be back next week.